Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. Because what we're basically talking about here is what do you measure, how do you measure it, and what does it mean? The challenge here is to find a point where we're actually well informed by data but not confused or, or burdened or suffocated by it. Now, this is not a test you probably repeat monthly. So the sentence read the following. It says lactate clearance is the pr- in the process is the process where lactate is created in one place and used in another. This can be in the same muscle where it is formed by type 2 fibers and then used by type 1 fibers. FT fibers have MCT4s which export lactate and ST fibers have MCT1s which import lactate into the cell. Now, unless you've got a sports science degree, you probably didn't understand a single thing that I've just said, but it was a mail that I got from Ross as uh, we built up to this podcast around the subject subject of FTP. And that's why we've called this uh, podcast, What the FTP? And to give you some background as to why we're doing this, and uh, I'll give you a bit of insight. We, we've uh, we, Ross and I went for a ride this morning and uh, obviously socially distanced ride. Ross is a lot stronger than me, so I only saw him from afar most of the ride. But um, over the last couple of weeks, Ross and I have been using our smart trainers uh, for cycling. And this isn't just a discussion about cycling. It's also relevant to anybody involved in the endurance sport world. And as a result of that, and I'm kind of a bit embarrassed to say that, I, I haven't really understood what all these values mean around FTP. I've been the editor of Bicycling Magazine and Runner's World here in South Africa for you know 20 years. And trying to understand these sort of concepts, unless you've got the equipment to kind of figure them out, you don't necessarily take as much interest as you should do. But now that I've got the smart trainer, I did my FTP test on on Zwift the other day. It said that my FTP was 234, my 20 minute wattage was 247. And Ross has been showing me some stuff on on an algorithm, on on an Excel spreadsheet that he's done, which is basically allowing me to see exactly what my one minute, two minute, 30 second, three minute power should be over that sort of time. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk a little bit about some of the basics of what FTP is. It's a functional threshold power. If you don't know, most of us should know what that means. But if you do see it on your Zwift and your and your smart trainer and even on your power meter, you need to understand what it's about. We're going to start with the most obvious question, Ross. And I'm going to go back to when I first started training as a triathlete in the early 90s, when Everything was about aerobic and anaerobic. So let's start with that discussion. What is aerobic and what is anaerobic? Well, let, let, let me start first of all by apologizing for the abbreviation bombardment in that, <laughs> in that sentence you read. Hopefully by the end of this, listeners will understand what those letters mean. I doubt it. Then the second thing is, let me congratulate you for joining the world of scientific analysis. You've said actually before on this podcast that you are a closet sports scientist or that you wish that you'd studied it. But now, and this is the thing that I would offer also to all the listeners, because many of you are not cyclists and you don't have a necessary uh, specific interest in cycling. What we're about to address is universal and relevant to other sports also. So running, even team sports, fitness, 
Because what we're basically talking about here is what do you measure, how do you measure it, and what does it mean? Yeah. And and the whole premise is can you make better decisions using data than you would make based on feel and no numbers at all? And obviously there's a point at which we become blinded by data, overloaded by it, and we make worse decisions. So the challenge here is to find a point where we're actually well informed by data, but not confused or, or burdened or suffocated by it. So what you're doing now with your smart trainer is exactly what sports science is about in this, in this area. It's about measuring things, asking what they mean, making decisions, relating one thing to another, FTP, LT, MLSS, all these things we'll discuss. <laughs> so the first question you've asked there is the difference between aerobic and anaerobic, which is an important question, and we'll, we'll see why in a moment. Just before, again, before I answer that, this whole area is so confused by specific language that people have adopted and co-opted over years. So when we talk about what a definition for, say, an FTP or an LT is, you'll soon discover that different people often use different terms to describe what is actually the same thing, or they use the same term in one place to describe what someone else would, would describe with it, that same term as a different thing. Yeah, it's like, it's like in South Africa here, we talk about flip-flops that we wear on our feet, and in Australia, they call it a thong, and in England, I don't know, they call it something else. And, and, and a thong isn't flip-flop. Right, so, so like in, so in Australia, they say, uh, I've lost my thong, and you, uh, hang on, what? That means something totally different to me. And so it's it's a language thing. That's really all it is. And it makes it very confusing for the end user. Yeah. Um, because people become defensive about their language. They think that it's right. They become aggressive towards others and hostile sometimes in a nasty way. Like if you if you spend some time on these chat forums, cycling forums and so on, you just see the way people hurl insults at each other. And actually, they're more or less saying the same thing. About what? In other words, somebody's saying lactate threshold and somebody says FTP and they're saying, well, that's not a... That's not the same thing. Is well, that, I'll, I'll give you an example. Someone, give me an someone, insight into the world of uh, sports scientist trolls. Someone will you, will try to be helpful. It's a guy who's a cyclist, maybe he's a coach, and he'll write an article on what FTP is, and he'll give a definition. And five people will appear in the comments and say, you're an idiot, you're a troll, you don't know what you're talking about. You said it's the power output for 60 minutes. It's actually not. It's the power output for approximately 60 minutes, which you can measure in a 40K time trial. And it's so stupid because they're, they're actually more or less talking about the same thing with subtle variations in, in meaning. And in this instance, it's the use of the word approximately. Now, to a scientist who lives in a black and white world, that word is important. If you want to be absolutely precise, it matters. But oftentimes I get, <laughs> it's funny, you know, like grammar Nazis who will come up in public and they'll, they'll correct your punctuation and your grammar. If you use an apostrophe when you shouldn't, or if you say your instead of your, they'll point it out. Yeah. Yes, you're right, but it's not necessary. Like, I know what you meant. So let's actually just go with that, you know? Yeah. So it is, a, it is a difficult area for people to navigate and, and hopefully we can shed some light on that. The way to navigate the language subtleties, by the way, is to understand the principle. Because if you understand the principle, 
In other words, it's like holding that object up. This is what I'm talking about. Then observers can say, oh, right, it's a flip-flop. Oh, right. no, hang on. Okay, I call yeah. it a thong. But we needn't disagree because we can actually both see what you're talking about. Right. So yeah. that's what we want to do here. We want to we give you principles. Okay, so back to aerobic and anaerobic. And the reason that little <laughs> prologue, monologue was important is because this is an example of such a term. And a lot of people will jump on you and say, ah, oh, there's no such thing as aerobic and anaerobic. We don't use those words anymore because uh, we're, we're grammar Nazi, sports science Nazi, and we're going to correct you on that. It's stupid because everyone would know what you mean by it. And what you mean by it is that when we exercise at certain intensities, most of our energy comes from what is the oxidative or the oxygen using energy pathways. We're taking carbohydrates like glycogen or glucose or fats in the form of fatty acids and we're passing them down a series of enzyme-driven chemical reactions to produce ATP for our muscles. Which is the energy. Which is the currency of energy for the muscle. So that's right. the guy that we need to get to the muscles in order to constantly power contractions. Which stands for ATP? Adenosine triphosphate. So it's three little that's phosphate right. molecules bound to an adenosine molecule. And when that bond breaks, so it goes from ATP, tri, to ADP, di, energy is released. And right. that's, the, that's why it's an energy currency. And that little sort of um, nuclear explosion... Yes. For want of a better word, is actually what drives your muscles forward, essentially. Uh, it, it's, well, it's, an important, it's an important part of the muscle contraction process. Right. So the, the myosin and the actin that contract or interact with one another, they release as a consequence of ATP. And it's, so ATP is the end product of the metabolic processes. And aerobic or oxidative is forming that ATP as a consequence of a series of reactions that ends with oxygen as an electron acceptor in the in the pathway. So if your body, think of your body as a, as a car factory and as a conveyor belt mm. and various stages of that conveyor belt, different parts are being added or removed or changed, painted and so on. And what comes out is a car, that's what it looks like. And in the oxidative conveyor belt, oxygen is involved at the end. Right. In contrast, when it's anaerobic, it's... So in other words, just to stop you there very briefly, you can create work before oxygen is involved or not. You can create energy before yeah. oxygen. In other you words, can, that would be a sprint, for instance. You can create energy without oxygen having right. to be there. Okay. And that's why I was going to... So in contrast to the oxidative pathways, there are what's called the glycolytic pathways, right. which use glycogen to form ATP much more quickly, but with certain negative consequences, but without needing oxygen. Right. So that's why they're called anaerobic. So aerobic implies oxygen, anaerobic replies no oxygen. Makes right. sense? Right. Now, those terms are outdated and they've been replaced by oxidative and glycolytic. Most people still understand what you mean by them if you said it's aerobic versus anaerobic energy supply. Yeah. But but the reason they're outdated is long story, but basically like it's it's not necessarily oxygen per se. It's more related to the rate at which that energy is required, which is a function of intensity. So when we exercise at high intensities, we're demanding energy supply that cannot be met by the oxidative or aerobic supplies. Yeah. And various things are happening. We are activating more fast twitch muscle fibers. Those fast twitch fibers are not so good at the oxidative bit, but they're very good at the glycolytic bit. So they tend to produce energy in the form of ATP yeah. without using oxygen, 
there are, we'll get to this, the consequences of it in terms of lactate and acidosis. And when we exercise harder, our sympathetic, you know, that fight or flight nervous system is more switched on. That drives the enzymes for glycolytic, not necessarily oxidative. Right. We have more calcium, which also switches on enzymes. The point I'm trying to make is that there are a number of different things related to exercise intensity that shift us towards anaerobic or glycolytic as we exercise harder and harder. If we stay at low exercise intensities, marathon pace or even slower, easy training runs, easy training rides, the energy demand, the flux or the rate at which energy is produced can be met by those oxidative. And, and when we did our podcast earlier this year on the science of perfect training, we went into this in a little bit more detail for those yeah. listening. And the whole, the, one of the limiting things is how many mitochondria do you have? So going back to my admittedly bad analogy of us as a car factory, the mitochondria are the, are the workers at each station. You know, they, in fact, they are the factory, if I really think about it, yeah. because they contain all the enzymes that drive this oxidative process. So an athlete who is endurance trained has more of these mitochondria and therefore they can produce energy through oxidative routes more effectively, more energy. So if I want to be in with the sports scientists and I'm talking to them and I'm saying things like, um, you know, I went f you wouldn't say you were going for oxidative ride. You would say I was in an oxidative state and I was a gly glycolytic state. Right. That would be the right. That would be the current terms for what we understood as aerobic and anaerobic. Right. Probably but, in the nineties. But again, I, I, there's a lot of hills you can choose to die on. <laughs> if a, if a sports scientist is going to choose the hill to die on to say. Oh, you shouldn't have said aerobic, anaerobic. That would be, in my opinion, a waste of energy. You could say I was an aerobic ride this afternoon. Right. Okay. More often than not. And the whole point, actually, of this discussion is we use these intensities, and there's not just two of them. There's aerobic, anaerobic. If you want to divide exercise into two parts, but you could divide it into 10 parts, and then there'd be high-intensity neuromuscular on the one extreme and very low intensity on the other and so you could you could come up with five levels, seven levels, ten levels, whatever. And you all want. of those but are a mixture of those two states, right? Because so it's there's no there's no you're not in an oxidative state and just in a glycolytic state. There are mixtures of those states throughout the effort process. There is a spectrum. It's not okay. as though you move from one room to the next. It's yeah. one big building, and it does have poles, as, as it were. Like you've got entire. In fact, there's another there's another one, the creatine phosphate system, which I'm sure you've heard of. Now, when I'm running a hundred meters in an Olympic final or running from a, a, a wild animal, I'm getting most of my energy then from creatine phosphate instead right. of ATP. So that's actually, there's actually more than just the two we've spoken about. Mm. Um, so, so yes, if you were to say to someone this morning was an easy ride, you could say it was aerobic. You could say it was in zone two or three. Yeah. It, and this is again where, say, if you said it was in zone two and I was thinking in terms of a seven zone system, I would have a different understanding than if you were thinking in terms of a five zone system Correct. because they'd mean yeah. slightly different things. And the whole, the whole point really, the question for athletes listening to this is how do we anchor it in order to plan it? Right. Yeah. Okay. So now we've, we, we, we kind of figure out what these processes mean. So let's talk about this almost mythical position, this threshold that we talk yeah. about in terms of lactate. So this is another, I guess, old school term now because lactate threshold was always something that everybody talked, lactate turning point, all those sort of things. Just explain what that mechanism is and what those terms are now. 
So it's it's an old term, but it's still an accurate one. So it, it exists. I mean, there is such a thing as a lactate threshold. Defining it is another story. Like, so it's an easy thing to, to say exists. It's another story to define it. We'll get to that. But if you think about, first of all, thresholds, let's take this away from what happens in our muscles and in our metabolism. If you go to the eye doctor, the optometrist, you know they do that thing and they say, can you read the bottom line? Mm. And you say, no, it's just blurred. It looks like I'm underwater. And how about now? No, how about now? How about now? No. And eventually they change the setting. You say, now I can see it. You've hit the threshold. Right. And so that's a threshold for your vision. That's how they prescribe spectacles to you. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing with hearing. Can you hear that noise? No. Can you hear that noise? Turning it up, turning it up. Oh, now I hear it. So a threshold is basically a point at which something changes. So in the body, as we exercise harder and harder and harder, so I'm riding at 100 watts, 120, 40, 60, 80, 200, eventually what happens if I'm measuring things in your body is that I measure lactate begins to appear in your blood. That lactate was always being formed, but it was being formed at such low rates is it a byproduct? It's a byproduct of metabolism. So okay. going back, and this is why that question you asked at the beginning is the right start point. So even in zone one, I'm still producing some level of lactate, even though it's not measurable. Correct. And the reason right. it's not measurable is because most of my energy in that low zone, it doesn't matter how we anchor it, zone one is either the aerobic in a two-level system, it's the one out of five in a five-level, it doesn't matter. Yeah. The point is it's easy intensity, most of my energy is coming from oxidative sources, fats and carbs that I'm running through my mitochondria and so on, and it's oxygen and electron acceptor. When that happens, we form very little lactate because we don't need to. The, the, the flux is low enough that we can deal with the flow, the flux, through the oxidative systems. As I exercise ever harder, the flux goes up, and at some point, we exceed or start to approach the limits to what that pathway can deliver. Make sense? Yes. And then what we do is we send more of this product, pyruvate, it's a glucose gets broken into pyruvate, that pyruvate can either enter the mitochondria or it can form lactate. And when the rate is too high, more of that pyruvate is converted to lactate. So at the risk of getting slightly technical here, and I'm I apologize to the listeners if, if it feels like this. When you say it's a byproduct of exercise, we talked a little bit about those little nuclear explosions in our muscles that drive the mm. process of energy. What is the action of that? In other words, when that lactate is produced, is it, when we talk yeah. about a byproduct, we talk about a byproduct of, eat, of eating is the stool we deliver afterwards. Yeah, so actually, <laughs> is, it, is actually, it like that? or is as, it? As you're talking, it's, it's not a byproduct. It's an essential product of a specific pathway. The glycolytic pathway produces lactate as a matter of necessity. So it's not a waste product. No, it's definitely not a waste product. Okay. It's not like yeah. urea and uric acid that yes. your kidneys are helping you process. That's what and I was trying to of. understand in my brain. No, it's and it's, yes. it's actually important you brought that up because I agreed eas too easily earlier with the byproduct. It's not. It's actually an essential end product of a glycolytic pathway that allows us to produce ATP mm which we would not otherwise have been able to, and that would be catastrophic. Right. The problem with it is not lactate per se, but when lactate levels are going up, it's almost a flag or a marker for other things in our physiology that are changing in such a way or at such a rate, either up or down, that is going to predict the onset of fatigue. So for instance, hydrogen ion accumulation protons that are produced also as a consequence of breaking down ATP. And so 
uh, calcium depletion, uh, other ions that might accumulate, body temperatures going up, energy substrates are being used up at a faster and faster rate. So lactate is kind of the thing that scientists were able to measure yeah. and then it got blamed for what they then saw next, which was fatigue. It's because we all think lactate, lactate threshold, lactic acid. Yeah, oh it's, my, all, it's got this negative connotation, the, doesn't it? That burning feeling in my legs. Yeah. And you watch commentators, oh, the lactic, and they call it lactic. Lactic acid and lactate, same thing, except the one has, to use a chemistry term, dissociated its proton. So it doesn't, it exists as an <laughs> ionized form. So in other words, the human body so doesn't... So many questions to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's... <laughs> So, so, so basically an acid is a proton donor, hydrochloric acid, and it can give you its, its hydrogen. Yeah. Lactic acid is the same, but in the, in the human body, it doesn't exist as lactic acid. It only exists as lactate. So again, yes. if I was a sports science grammar Nazi, I'd say, oh, hang on, you said lactic acid, you meant lactate. And they do that. For what? I don't know. It doesn't really advance the conversation. Yes, because I suppose lactic acid is just a sort of a general term for people. And it, it, has, it has got a bad rap. Yeah. Purely because it's that negative feeling of pain in your legs when right. you're and putting you, in a big effort. And if you said to me, oh, lactic acid... I know what you mean. Yeah. What you should have said is lactate. Yeah. But anyway. But it's important. I think what I'm, what I'm trying to get across is that this, pro, this, this lactate that we produce is something that is part of the chemical process right. rather than a waste product of the and energy. If you, and if you couldn't yeah. produce it, as I said, your, your metabolism would grind yeah. to a halt and you'd actually yeah. be incapable of continuing yeah. exercise. So it's right. actually, so it's always it's actually an enabler. Yeah. Forget about So sorry, lactate, we've done you a disservice here by calling you a byproduct. You're actually essential. Right. And then even more than that, what, what a scientist, very famous, one of the great sports scientists, a guy called George Brooks discovered, is that that lactate is actually used as a source of fuel because remember, you, you, you make lactate from pyruvate. But you can actually go the other way. And so now you can take that lactate and turn it back into pyruvate and then you can use it for energy somewhere else. And that's what the body does. So the email that you began this podcast with was my, <laughs> my attempt. At, I, was, I was actually making notes more for myself, but I was also trying to explain that the fast twitch fibers, the glycolytic ones, are making this lactic, lactate, I nearly did it, lactate, which is then released by them because they've got this transporter that can actually put it out, right. exporter. So it's an exporter of lactate. And then the slow twitch fibers, which we've now learned are oxidative, they are importers. So they take it back up and they use it. It's used to- oh, they use it when it's, when it's needed at a higher intensity level. No, they, they use it by converting it back to pyruvate and then running it through the oxidative factory. Right. So, so it's like a turbocharger. It, it's a way, it's, it's like, it's basically the same as going to Europe with dollars, exchanging them and then getting euros and then spending it in another country. Because right. lactate's made in one place and then it's converted in another place and it's actually a source of energy. So right. it's actually called the lactate shuttle and it's a, it, it's a way that you can transfer energy around the body. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. And it's adding to the other energy systems we have, like the glycolytic right. and the oxidative. So in other words, now the slow twitch fibers are using glucose that they themselves had. They're using fatty acids coming from adipose tissue and themselves. And now they're getting lactate from others compartments also so the same thing is happening in different tissues so anyway the point is that lactate is not in and of itself the bad guy right but what it is is a is a marker that when you see lactate you know that the person has reached an intensity where fatigue is now going to be imminent because 
along with that lactate, so many other things are changing that are challenging steady state. Right. So when we are exercising at steady state, we're producing and using lactate more or less at the same rate. If not exactly the same, maybe slightly more production than losses, and it's going up very slowly, stabilized, makes sense. It's a manageable lactate increase. Correct. Yeah. Um, and eventually not an increase because we literally reach steady state, which leads us to another one of so our- So is that a definition of steady state? Yeah, strictly speaking. Yes, in this context. And so there right. is literally a definition, MLSS, maximal lactate steady state. What is the power output that you can cycle at for a period of 30 minutes, let's say, without your lactate going up? Is this sweet spot training? Can I throw that in there? I know we we probably should talk about it later, but it kind of feels like I can ask that question now. Yeah, it it, it is. Again, it would depend a little bit on which coach and which person you're listening to in terms of their language, their paradigms. But it's one of the sweet spots. I mean, one person's sweet spot might be too easy or too hard for another, but it's one of those because it's the point at which we're able to, in theory, exercise for a long time without premature fatigue right. and where we're challenging that balance, you know, because we're at that point where the, the lines at the bottom of the screen at the optometrist are blurred and now yeah. they're clear. Then they're right. blurred, then they're clear. Get it. We're exactly there. So in, in that sense, yes, it is. Um, and so maximum lactate steady state is a, is a measurable marker. You can look up on PubMed or Google Scholar, whatever, and you'll find studies that have used MLSS as a predictor of performance, as a predictive lactate threshold, which is a slightly different thing, yeah. as a predictor of FTP and all these, all these other concepts. So it turns out it's actually a very important um, physiological, biochemical, metabolic metric. Yeah. And it has performance implications. And when you train, what you are doing is you are changing that power output. So MLSS is a power output. It's 250 watts because that's the power that you could ride at without lactate going up. Right. If I made you at 260, it's going up. Right. 240, no problem. 250, you're at threshold. So yeah. that particular threshold, let me be, <laughs> let me be clear yes. on that. Yes. So, so it... And what happens when we get fitter, and we, we spoke about, remember our fictional friend, John, who was going to run a marathon, so this is running or cycling, is that the intensity at which that lactate accumulation begins to occur ever faster is shifted up. So now instead of it being 250, 10 weeks later, it's 260. Right. 20 weeks after that, it's 270. So why? Because our mitochondria number is going up, our capillary numbers are going up, our glycolytic, our our capacity to use lactate is going up. So all of a sudden, all these things that used to produce it and allow it to accumulate are shifted. We've we've raised the ceiling and now all of a sudden we produce less lactate at a given power. We use more lactate at a given power. Therefore, our steady state goes up. Makes sense. So yeah, so training shifts lactate Usage. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Because okay. so that's one of the functions. Because of we we don't need as our muscles get stronger, we don't need the fast twitch fibers. We don't right. have the same sympathetic drive. We've got more mitochondria to take up the pyruvate into the uh, the oxidative pathways. Right. And therefore, we are producing less of that lactate because it's just not needed as as much as so it was. It's, so it's a marker of fitness, isn't it? 
from it's a scientific point of training view. Training status, and, yeah. and because of that, it becomes a predictor of performance. And it's actually a very important one. When you look at, in this context of the sub-two-hour attempts, um, papers came out, and they, they'd always say this. It's the same for cycling and running, by the way. Three things integrated to predict performance is VO2 max, like the size of the engine, the economy, that's fuel utilization, how much energy can you produce for a low oxygen cost, yeah. and the threshold, which is either lactate threshold or MLSS and so on. And that's where, again, like not wishing to muddy the waters, I've hopefully, in fact, <laughs> hopefully we've made the waters clearer here. Yeah. Um, so I hope that what I'm about to say doesn't muddy them for you. But when we talk about lactate threshold, there are so many ways to even measure it. You know, like you think, oh, it's the point at which lactate accumulates. But mathematically, is it does it accumulate when it goes up by one? Does it accumulate when it hits a level of four? Does it accumulate when it goes up exponentially? Is there a turn point? So when you read papers on this stuff, they actually have to explain how did they identify the lactate threshold. And it's not and, something you and I could do on an average Wednesday morning ride anyway. No, like so for yeah, example, there's one method. Stuff. There's one method called the D-Max where you, you basically have to, I mean, <laughs> it's it's not unnecessarily complex. It's necessarily complex. So you have to do it like this. But it's it's crazy to think that you could tell someone, oh, there's a lactate threshold. Cool, just measure it. Well, no, because if I use this method, the Dmax, maybe I get a slightly different point power output compared to if I use the one millimolar threshold or the the obla as it's called. You might have seen this in magazines. Those of you who read up on this. And so when you see studies then that say, oh, lactate, prediction, uh, lactate threshold fails to predict FTP or lactate threshold is strongly associated with FTP, like how can these papers have different outcomes? They've done yeah. the same thing. Well, right. subtle differences make subtle differences. And that's one of the reasons. So give us an gets, example of how you can measure it in a lab, but what do they do? Well, do they, so you, they you literally take a blood sample and measure the number of lactate while that person is in exercise mode yeah so if you want if you want to do a lactate threshold remember what you're doing you imagine this for yourselves listeners is you've got a graph y-axis x-axis the y-axis is lactate concentration the x-axis is the one that goes up eh? the y is the one that goes, the one up. That goes up and the x-axis is the x-axis i'm just left. seeing my brain what you're yeah. saying left to right so the, the the vertical margin is your y-axis and horizontal is x and so Y-axis has your lactate concentration and your X-axis is time or, in this case, intensity. And it's going 100, 120, 140, 160 watts. Mm -hmm. And what we would do is we would make you exercise at ever-increasing. Every three minutes, we add 20 watts, whatever. There's various protocols. And initially, the rate of lactate increase is very low. It almost looks like a flat line because, as we've now discovered, we're producing it and consuming it or clearing it, to use the technical term, at the same rate. How are you measuring it? How are you seeing that lactate? Uh, you just take a blood sample and then you just do a lactate assay and it works out the concentration because okay. it looks for the, the, the so actual as, In molecule. other words, as the person is doing the exercise, you're taking the blood sample? Every two minutes, 55 seconds, because you want it right at the end of each workload. You, How do you do that? <laughs> uh, you, don't, you don't stick a needle in the guy every two minutes, 55. Generally, what you do is you run a cannula which is a little thin, flexible plastic tube, and that sits mm. in the vein. It's taped on there. It's the same as when you get an IV in the hospital. They just okay. they just make and then they leave it there, right? Right. So yeah, it's not. 
it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's also for some people it's it is. Yes. But they <laughs> basically yeah, so you can literally go in there and draw every single time there's a movement. So yeah, yeah, and these days, these days, like in, and you'll see this in field testing is you do a finger prick or an earlobe prick. And that's that's like when you have your cholesterol and your glucose measured at the pharmacy, those of you who've done that. And then you get these little portable lactate analyzers. Mm. And sometimes there are question marks over whether those things are valid and accurate but yeah. i think these days they're not bad yeah. so there's different ways to do it but in the lab that's how i would have done it was and we did we run a little cannula and then measure the every two minutes 45 seconds we just get a little tube full of blood and we put that on ice and we test it later on and, and so now we so now it's flatlining early on right and then so it, we're building this graph and it's flat early because your clearance and your production are both they're matched you're in steady state and then all of a sudden it starts to tilt up and at the risk of using a, a, a <laughs> an analogy that we're fed up with is when you ever if you ever see the graph of COVID-19 cases over time <laughs> it tilts up it looks really easy at, at flat in the beginning and all of a sudden it just takes off and it looks like an, it's called an exponential graph yeah and that's what lactate looks like over time in those tests and now in theory, the point at which it tilts up is your lactate threshold or corresponds to your lactate threshold. But as I've said, measuring that's actually quite difficult because it's a mathematic and there's various like the Dmax, you basically take the lowest and the highest, you join them, then you run a line parallel to that that's a tangent and you were oh, it's anyway. But any time any time on that curve is a threshold of some sorts, but I suppose the difficulty is where on that curve do you make that exactly. line? <laughs> exactly. Especially when it's a smooth curve, then how do you say Because you, you would have heard maybe the, the word lactate turn point. It's not a, it's not a corner, it's a exactly. curve. Yeah. So that lactate turn point is a little misleading because yeah. it's not as though it sort of goes and then all of a sudden it gets to like a T-junction and whoo, changes direction up. It actually sometimes is quite smooth. And I've even read papers where they'll say we tested 15 people and in three of them we couldn't determine the <laughs> threshold because there were too many confounding or too many other – you find two or three different thresholds in the is same Is it not possible person. that it goes up so fast that there is a corner that you can't detect? Some, sometimes. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it – and sometimes you do. You get different shapes yeah. of it is what we're, we're trying to get at. When you, do a, when you do an MLSS, maximal lactate steady state, what you do is – Usually you do a lactate threshold one before, and then let's say the guy, you, you're estimating it's a 260 watts. You get him in at 260, and he cycles for 30 minutes at that. If his lactate goes up, you get him in a few days later, and you make him go 250. Right. And, or if it doesn't go up, you make him go 270. And you basically, through trial and error, it's not different, those who lift weights, to how do you figure out a one rep max? Yeah. You, you sort of estimate, and if he can handle it, you add. If he can't handle it, you go down, and eventually you find it through through trial and error. So yeah. there's different ways to do so it. So you can find the apex of that corner if you did the laborious bunch of tests. Yeah, so you yeah. need, and I mean the studies I was looking at in preparation here, uh, there's a handful of them, and you need people to come in four times because they've got to do yeah. the initial lactate test. And, and that doesn't even include a familiarization in some cases that you might need just to get them accustomed to mm. what's, what's going to happen. So the point is actually, and it's a good segue into this, is that's that's not really accessible to people. I yeah. mean, how many people have a have the inclination, the time, the money to go and do that? Um, it's invasive and it's time-consuming, potentially expensive. So then what we get instead is the functional way to assess threshold, and that is where FTP comes in. So you've called it what the FTP, and I hope you're going to spell what as W-A-T-T because that would be appropriate. Okay, I'll do that. Uh, so now, now you get an FTP, which is basically the, the, the 
Practical, functional. That's the clue. Functional. I was going to say, can you explain functional for me? Because you've you're saying it's now functional. What do you mean by functional? Well, because it's not entirely true, I suppose, to talk about lactate threshold and all that sort of stuff is theoretical because it's still real. Yeah. <laughs> it's just laboratory derived. Functional is meant to infer accessible to anyone on your smart trainer or if you've got a power meter on your bicycle and a flat road, you can actually now go and measure this thing in a functional way, so doing you, the so thing you, you do. Usable. Yeah, accessible, yeah. usable, pragmatic. Right. But it's the same thing conceptually. It's a threshold power. And right. so FTP would be defined as the power output that a person can sustain in a semi-steady state mode or a quasi-steady quasi state. In other words, they're right on that threshold where if they went far harder, they would start to accumulate physiological changes that would cause fatigue. In other words, the lactate overload. Yes, although again, One remember, of the it's not the lactate per se that's causing the overload. It's the lactate that's a marker. So it's, right. the, intensi it's the intensity overload that we can identify through lactate measurements. Okay. Make sense? Right. So and that's exactly what it is with FTP. It's is. a subtle difference, <laughs> but I get, it. I get but, what you're saying. But, but yes, it is a subtle difference. But it's, it's, like, it's like if you're walking through a field of landmines and there are little red flags, the flag's not going to be the thing that blows you up. Right. But if you see the flag, you don't go there. That's, right. so, so, yeah, it's a small <laughs> thing, but it's, a, it's, a, it's the thing, right? So <laughs> We're going to do a podcast on your, of your analogies of analogies, 2020. Right? I promise you, sometimes I listen back to these podcasts and I think, oh, what was I thinking? They could well, have, I'll make could, a highlights package for I us could sometime have later in the year. 10 other things to use and I didn't, but anyways... <laughs> That's the that's the joy. We don't. It's not as long live. as it, as long as he explains, and I think we all understand what those things mean. So it helps him explain it. <laughs> These are not live, but they're live. You know, we don't, we don't. Just so you know, folks, we don't edit this and no. make sure we get it exactly right. We just we just sometimes we fudge our way through the mud here. Um, so 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 what I was saying is, you can then define FTP as the as the highest power output that someone would be able to sustain for a prolonged period in a semi steady state mode and now prolonged period define that right this is where things get nuanced yeah. and this is where people get hostile and, yeah. and arguments begin right depending who you listen you're to you're answering so, my questions already and, and andrew Cogan is regarded as i guess the father of the ftp concept and he talks about a 40 kilometer time trial now for some people that's 50 minutes for some people that's 75 minutes but that's how he would do it you can you can do it as a sixty minute effort. So in other 40 words, if, why would a forty kilometer time trial be a measure? But because that's different for everybody. Because most people can ride for approximately an hour at that semi steady state intensity. Right. And so it becomes a sixty. But this is where, for instance, I told you in the beginning, like someone will say it's your sixty minute power, and then someone will say, No, 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 it's approximately your sixty minute power. So and the then you start wondering, well, why are you quibbling about a word? But right. it, anyway, so it's it's So is the ultimate practical test of the FTP then, I'm just throwing this out there, is the one hour cycling record. It's become I mean, it's become that way. It's rejected it? by some. They say no, rather just do a forty K. But for me, like just do it as a sixty, and then call it call it your FTP as assessed in a sixty minute effort, right? You know, it's a, and that and that and that it would it would probably be in general accurate. It would be the same thing as yes. your as your forty k, and it's more or less the same as your MLSS. Maybe a little bit higher in a well trained athlete. 
who can ride slightly harder for 60 minutes, if they're well-trained and well-motivated, their FTP tends to be a little bit higher than their lactate thresholds and their MLSSs and so on. So here's a quick question. The, the, the top riders that we see around the world and over the years that have attempted the one-hour record on the track, um, Jens Voigt of this world and the, the, the many sort of big champions around the world, when we talk about that 60-minute, they, they, they're doing the one-hour. Do they scientifically now say when they go into those one-hours – what is they must ride at the FTP? Would that be the would that be their measure of effort? Uh, a little for higher, that a little higher than little that actually. Higher. Yeah, okay. they, they probably because remember their lactate clearance and tolerance and, and it's particularly tolerance is so high because of the level of conditioning that they can actually ride slightly above that for an hour right. and just accept that. So they they would ride at a greater percentage of lactate threshold or maximum thresholds than most would but do. But it would so maybe be a, a baseline, bit. I suppose. They would know yeah, that, that was their baseline. And there's no doubt that this concept, these concepts have evolved. And there's a 20-minute FTP yeah. as well, which is not strictly speaking FTP. These things evolved in order to support those kinds of performances. Right. So, so the short answer is yes. The degree to which they would monitor and measure that and, and potentially uh, dictate their performance outputs might vary depending on the person, but it's, it, it would be the it would be the best predictor right. of their ultimate performance is their power at FTP because that's kind of what they're about to do. You know, the fact that they're covering fifty six k or more <laughs> in yeah. that hour is neither here nor there. But it's if I was going to go out and, and do the one hour Zwift FTP test, mm. um, I would be going as hard as I potentially could do based on rate of PZ exertion, all sorts of other factors. Right, that would give me a more accurate supposedly more accurate reflection of my one hour power if I did one hour. It would be exactly your one hour power. Notwithstanding my mental fatigue. Well, and this is the problem. So now this is where you start to get variations in how you can assess this thing. So those of you who've done your FTPs like Mike has done, uh, like you've done recently, right, is you don't do a one-hour trial because a one-hour trial assumes such a level of motivation, pacing ability, because most people don't really do that. I mean, it's, it's, it's so long to sustain what overall is a max effort. I mean, it's not a max effort because if it was, you'd be poked in two minutes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's a, it's a sub-max max, um, which is a tricky concept for many people. The idea is that at 60 minutes and two seconds, you should fall off the bike. Right. Um, but you don't because you're pacing, your, your, your governor <laughs> right. brain goes, hang on a minute, I don't want to do that. Exactly. You see, you're, you're becoming a scientist. <laughs> a pseudo-scientist. Um, <laughs> so, so that's why you get the 20-minute test, right? So now you've got this test that's been developed where you do a very structured warm-up. It includes a five-minute all-out effort, then a 10-minute recovery. Then you do the 20-minute test. And you take that power output and you knock 5% off of it, mm. multiplied by 0.95. Some say 0.93, some say 0.95. My opinion on that, and it's the same thing as is it a 60, is it a 65, a 55, is it doesn't really matter because what you're going to end up doing is using that outcome, that power output, whether it's a 20 minutes or a 95% of 20 minutes or a 60 minute, you're using it as an anchor point to then adjust training in future. So as long as you understand what you've measured and how it impacts on training decisions that you make, it, it probably doesn't really matter if it's off by five watts or 10 watts, because let's be honest, like on a good day, versus a bad day, there's naturally a 10 to 20 watt difference between what you feel like, right? So why would you then lose sleep over is the accuracy of my test 
to plus and minus two watts. It's it's the point is it's 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 trivial by comparison to the day to day noise that we encounter in in life as in physiology. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So let's uh, go into how we use this FTP number. So for those of you that have done your FTP test, whether it's on Zwift or any of the other smart platforms, whether you've had the, the opportunity to do one in the gym or even do one on your bike out in the ride or run it or whatever it is, we talk about these numbers and we, 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 we say that we've, we've given you a lot of the theory behind them. So now this is the crux of the question that we talked a bit, a bit about this before we did the podcast. Um, how do we use this number when we are training for an endurance event? In other words, how is it useful to us? Well, it's a couple of things. One is that you can use it to track um, your improvements. So, and if you're gonna do that, by the way, then FTP might be one of a handful of different metrics that do the same thing conceptually, because your ability on a bicycle or as a runner, because this, this, this by the way, and if you stuck with us as a non-cyclist, well done, uh, <laughs> but, but I can't make the point strongly enough. This is the same stuff that a runner has to deal with, except they deal with velocities, not powers, and they deal with aerobic and anaerobic capacities and, and speed at threshold and all this. You know, a marathon runner's performance is predicted by the same things as a cyclist, yeah. except it's speed, not power. I guess so, it's the same for triathletes or anybody in endurance sport. Really. The swimming will be similar, though yeah. I know so little about that that I, I tend to steer clear of those shallow, my shallow waters in that respect. <laughs> So, so what you so the first thing is you can use it as a test, because as we've said, as your condition improves, your physiology changes in a direction that favours a shift of that threshold power right. Right. So two, two, what was yours? Two forty-seven for twenty minutes. Yeah. Given that you're now doing a lot of riding by the middle of August, six weeks from now, you would want that to be two sixty, if not more, two seventy, right? Which means that your yeah. FTP over 60, the, the estimated FTP, strictly speaking, will be up also by, I don't know, 10, 15% if you're doing it well. Yeah. So, so if you do the tests regularly, then in effect, you are assessing whether there is progress, yes or no. And according to, just to clarify how these tests work, the 20-minute test um, then says if you've got an average wattage of X amount for your 20 minutes, the percentage of that test, I think it's, what is it, 98% of your 20-minute test is your is your theoretical FTP? 95, 95 is the conventional one. So I think right. that's what Swift does and Strava might do the right. same. Uh, Coggan's written 93% in one of his books on the subject. But it's, yeah, and, and that's where I got to the point of like, the difference between 93 and 95% is, is right. a handful of watts and it's not really worth losing sleep over those. Yeah. But that's how those tests work, essentially. They allow you to create a theoretical FTP um, for a shorter test. Without having to do the 60-minute right. effort. And you could do a couple others. Like you could do an interval training session where you do long intervals, like two by 20 minutes, you know. And whatever you do as an average for those two 20-minute intervals is mm. probably close to what you do in a highly motivated race reward situation for right. 60. 
you can also, if you do enough riding, and those of you on Zwift and Strava, you'll see this. There's a critical power curve that those programs produce for you where they will take your best efforts over 5, 10, 20 minutes. And if you've done six months and you've, you've spread your effort out and you've gone hard for a couple of times for 20 minutes, that's not going to be far off either. Right. And then there's another one you can use, which is the critical power concept. And again, I hope we're swimming through clear waters here. Critical power. I'll stop can, you if we're not doing Yeah, we can, we can make it even simpler. Critical power is very similar to FTP as a concept. It's, it's defined as the power output that you could sustain without fatigue for a long time. Okay, vague. It turns out that no that long, yeah. It turns out that the critical power, the way that it's measured, deduced or calculated and defined is the power output at which most of your energy is aerobically produced. So again, we come back to your initial question. So it's an oxidative limited power output. So let's say that yours was 250. If you were to go 260, you would be non-oxidative for a small portion of what's required. And as we've discovered, when we go into those non-oxidative, those glycolytic sources, we start to get early fatigue. Right. So does this sound a lot like the FTP concept to you? It's the yeah. same thing, right? It's a power output that you can sustain for a long time because it's in that steady state, right on the limit of where your physiology would start to cause fatigue for you. Right. And that's what critical power is. And the way you, the way you measure, because critical power leads to, I think, one of the most interesting concepts, which is the anaerobic work capacity or the W prime, as it's called. The way that works is you basically, again, you draw your graph, y-axis, x-axis. Your y-axis this time, the vertical line, has got your power output and your x-axis has got duration. Three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Take your pick of, or take all five. And you would plot your best performance for each of those durations. And what you would get is what looks like half of a, of a skateboarding ramp. It's like a, it drops real steeply initially and then it becomes flat at the bottom. Yeah. So it's kind of like half of a U. <laughs> yeah. That is called a power duration curve. And what it shows is that your power for short durations is very good. This is your best ever three minutes, 400 watts. Your best ever five minutes is 360. Your best ever 10 minutes is 300. And your best ever 20 is 265, whatever. Okay? Right. And that curve, because it will be a curve, can then be used, you, you've got to tinker with it mathematically a little bit, to work out critical power, which strictly is where that curve is going to become a flat line. It's called the asymptote in mathematical terms. And it can be used to determine something called the W prime, which is, as I said, your anaerobic capacity. So that you can think about as the size of your battery. Now, if your critical power is calculated appropriately, it will be very similar to your FTP. Right. Like we're talking handful of watts different, right? Which is nothing over, right. over 260 watts. It's trivial. Because they're, they're basically speaking about a very similar thing, right? Yeah. But, and, and, and what it means is that at 250 watts, you are in a semi-state, mostly aerobic state, where your energy is coming from those oxidative pathways and you can keep going, not indefinitely, although that's <laughs> one of the flaws in the critical powers. It does say indefinitely. It's clearly not the case. No. You can't ride forever. Because other things fatigue anyway. Yeah, yeah. You, you're just going to get fatigued muscles, neuromuscular right. system, thermal system, energy substrates, etc. All yeah, these it's things. It's a theoretical. It's a theoretical yeah. prediction. 250. If I'm at 260, I'm using 
energy beyond my oxidative capacity right. at a rate of 10 joules per second. Now, those 10 joules per second are eating into my battery. Right. So if my battery had a capacity of 20 kilojoules, 20,000 joules, every second I'm using 20 of those joules and my battery is getting smaller and smaller and more and more and more depleted. Eventually that battery is going to run out and that's the point at which I will fail. And so the concept of this W prime is that if you know W prime and you know critical power, you can predict fairly accurately where the person is going to fatigue. And that's so W prime is defined then as the amount of joules you use during a set level of activity or uh, time of activity. Like yeah, kind of, kind of like a, the strict definition, it's the slope of the line of power against time, the inverse of time. And right. what it basically means, or, or it is the intercept if you plot power as a function of the total work done in a given bout of exercise. Mm. And so what it basically is telling you is your anaerobic work capacity. How much work can you do beyond or above critical power? Right. And it's a very interesting concept because for every second that we are above our critical power, we're using that battery. And for every second we're below our critical power, we replenish that battery. So when we do variable paced exercise, like a cycling race, and we hit a short, sharp one kilometer climb, and everyone just goes for it, and the power goes from 200 to 450 watts, everybody is above critical power for three minutes, 10 seconds. Mm. Unless, and unless your W prime is large enough, you're getting dropped on that climb. Right. Now you get to a six kilometer climb, like a cat two, everyone's going 350. If your critical power is below that, you're eating into your battery. Right. Is your battery big enough to get you to the top at five watts a kilo? Maybe, maybe not. So it, it starts to become actually quite a useful way to predict performance because it predicts fatigue. It's, it's a really cool concept. And you can then predict things like your interval sets and your based on the, if I can do, if I can push out my 500 watts for a 30 second interval, I know that I can do that based on that. Exactly. Power number. Exactly. Because yeah. again, you're using the you're using that anaerobic battery right. when you are above critical power and you replenish it when you're below. Right. Now it's not one to one. You don't use it at the same rate that you replenish it mm. because eventually it's it's progressively getting smaller and smaller. But it starts to become quite a useful tool. As long as you understand its limitations, it doesn't work well at the extremes. So anything less than about three to if you're, if you're a high intensity athlete, probably two minutes. If you're more of a roadie distance guy, three, five minutes. Right. And anything beyond an hour starts to also become a little bit ridiculous. It makes mm. some, some false calculations and predictions. But anything within that actually becomes quite useful. And there's no doubt that that is one of the key things that is used by elite athletes, cyclists and runners. Remember when they did the sub two hour marathon attempt gimmick the first time in Monza? You saw Kipchoge, Tedesi and, oh, Who's the third guy? Uh, Lelesa, the, yes. the Ethiopian. And they hit halfway by definition in 59.50 because they were running two hours. And sure enough, both those guys were gone. They were dropped. So Kipchoge is able to run at 21 kilometers an hour without any problems, whereas the other two guys are cracked. And then you look at that and you say, well, how is that possible? They run 204, 205 marathons and they can't stay with him till halfway. It's because he's at 
threshold or below and they're just over and so they're eating into that battery and he's not and so it has profound effects on performance even though it's actually a small difference because yeah. you imagine that curves exponential the moment you start heading up you head up quickly yeah and so that's it becomes actually really interesting and important as a way to to gauge and assess how much better is one athlete than the other they're actually two percent better but they can run twice the distance at the same speed. It's crazy. So we were talking uh, before the podcast uh, about how, you know, many of the riders, Tour de France and elite riders, the pro riders that we see out there, when a, when a guy accelerates, so if a guy like Chris Froome, for instance, going up Mont Ventoux and he's driving along at, you know, six watts per kilo and then suddenly you're the, the, somebody goes off the front, he knows theoretically and scientifically mm. that that person that's gone off the front is going to blow up because there's no way they can maintain a watts per kilogram that's out of the norm <laughs> or the in cycling who knows what that norm is but there, there is <laughs> yeah. there is that there is that scientific and you told a great story um to me before the podcast about uh, i think it was lance armstrong talking about pentani at one stage which yeah. was a, an example of how science got involved in a race mm, and i mean who knows with armstrong as to whether this is embellished <laughs> after the fact you know armstrong's that guy who catches a fish and Three, it's a good story. Three tellings <laughs> later, it's a, it's a great white shark. So I don't know for sure, but the story was that Pantani attacked him and it opened up a gap and they were very concerned about whether they needed to really go for it and chase him because he was he was out front in the race and he was absolutely destroying everyone. And apparently Armstrong got Ferrari, Michele Ferrari, who was his coach on the phone and they said, listen, you're watching this, do you think he can keep this up? And Ferrari came back and said, no way. And one of the ways that you would estimate that, you don't know it, you play a bet right is you're, you're looking at the guy and saying given his physiology we know that he can do 6.2 watts for 20 minutes per kilogram right uh he's just attacked and based on how quickly he left you he must be doing 6.8 right in order for him to sustain that effort given his ftp of six or 5.8 watts a kilo he he would need a, a anaerobic work capacity of X kilojoules and it's just not feasible that he's got that. And so therefore, I think he's going to blow. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I don't know that they, that they do it as, as logically as that where every item is questioned and, and assessed, but these guys that ride to power and they're just looking at their watts and an attack goes off, okay? He's just gone off at 520 watts. I'm going to go from 400 to 420 because he doesn't have it in him to do that for another minute, yeah. another five minutes. And so therefore at 420, I'll get him again in, in a K. And, and and they become quite systematic about it. And again, I, I wouldn't- and it's amazing how accurate that does work. We've seen Froon do that in a, little, a couple of years ago. He was, that was one of his tactics frustratingly for yeah. our cycling fans yeah, to watch that sort of looking down on his part. It's, it's almost a, become a sort of a meme in cycling. Yeah, I tell of a doll, you're just riding, <laughs> looking to stem. You might as well be on an indoor bike and yeah, just like yeah. looking down and yeah. watching Netflix on your bicycle. <laughs> and uh, again, I, so, so I'm, not, I'm not sitting here saying that that's how they're working it out. Is a, they're making guesses on critical power. Because again, if you get it wrong and the guy's critical power is 10 watts more than you guessed or is, is W prime, is is a, is ten percent higher than you guessed? He's never coming back. Right. So you'd be pretty stupid to place all your bets on data. But they are certainly based on a combination of experience and knowing their own limitations and and what are basically at that level human limitations. That's yeah. where that's where again in cycling, doping, and who knows motors and stuff starts changing human limitations, and then it gets then mm. it gets laughable. It's, it's but not, yeah. But but yeah, that, this is the the concept is the same thing. Is that 
it's just not tenable to attack. And this, this is what you've heard, actually. Other teams are told back in the postal days and now back in the sky days, why don't you attack, Nairo? He says, how do you attack at 420 watts? We're, right. all, we're all riding at CP. We're all riding at critical power for right. 25 minutes. You want me to attack? You know what's yeah. going to happen if yeah. I attack? Well, for that power is I'm, I'm gone. Yeah. I'll, I'll drop out of the top 20. Right. Yeah. So yeah. physiology is winning the day, you know, and, uh-huh. and that's where these, these trains that just go uphill at 406 watts a kilo for 20 minutes are neutralizing physiology. Yeah. Just as an aside, I must say, I, I'm, I know there's a big school of thought around this in cycling, but, you know, that I, I hope that at, one st- at some stage when we look at cycling, they'll band power meters and radios and radios Mm. and it will change the sport Mm. of cycling for the better well i mean just think running remember the one of the most famous or most enjoyable marathons in recent times was that race that um well two boston marathons the one that meb won and the one that the japanese fellow kawuchi won in the freezing cold Mm. because like the guy goes off the front and there's no feedback. The runners yeah. have to make a decision. They make the wrong decision. They let him go. Yeah. Next thing, he's got three minutes. Now there's a 5K left, and it's a, just a, everyone's pinning their ears back to catch him, and they can't. Yeah. And it's exhilarating and it's exciting, great. and I agree with you. Like, it's just so <laughs> micromanaged. I know. I know. It's, it's yeah. disappointing. Yeah, so let's, let, let's kind of wrap it up a bit. Uh, and, and we've gone through the science. I hope that we've kind of explained a bit more about some of the sort of physiological and scientific processes. I've certainly got a lot of clarity about this this process for myself now. I'm still going to be a, a, a sofa scientist, but uh, it helps me understand why we have this number called FTP. I, I guess in a way, when I think about FTP and having had this discussion, it feels like a, a democratic way for people to understand effort. So in other words, when we understand this number, it gives us a line to understand where, where we are. When it goes up, we can we, how we have improved. Mm. And for me, I guess practically, and I, I think we were talking about this before the podcast, I kept on asking you, how can I use this when yeah. I'm going out that six-minute climb? How and do I, don't, I use that? Do you know that? what? I don't think I've answered that, so maybe you're going to ask but now can, again. Can, but you, I, ask that? can I, you answer that I can, I can try because you asked before and I said, well, one thing you do is you repeat the test. Right. Because the, the test outcome is an indication of your progress and your adaptation. So yeah. you, you know, this is not a test you probably repeat monthly. It's probably <laughs> a, a test you repeat Quarterly, so every two to three months. If you're if you're new to cycling, by the way, your FTP is going to change quicker because you're on right. a you're on a steep part of the learning curve, the adaptation curve. So then you might measure your FTP once every six weeks, right. maybe every month even, as you get better. Whereas if you are an experienced cyclist, your FTP is not moving that much if you've right. been riding for a long time. So now you do it. Three months, maybe even six months. Maybe you do it if you're competitive, pre-season, mid-season, and that's it. So anyway, point is it's a test. And it's a training session also. Like, I mean, you did it. You know, that's a hard session. But the other way, the other way you do it. I mean, you, genu- the- you genuinely feel. I mean, just <laughs> for those of you who haven't done an FTP test, there is some discussion. Maybe you can even answer this as we digress slightly. But it is mentally very taxing. I was really kind of scared going into mm. it. And and your first sort of ten minutes, you, you feel well. I want to blow up any minute. The weird thing is. I was, I, my son, who's a reasonably good cyclist, said to me, yeah, Dad, you should be able to maintain 300 watts. So I went into this test thinking that 300 watts was possible and soon realized that that wasn't going to be possible. Yeah. Then I dropped down to 250 and I was determined to hold on to 250 for that 20 minutes. I just started to dip under that in the last five minutes. But mentally, 
it was absolutely one of the toughest things I've ever done because you literally know that halfway through that, you're thinking, I don't know whether I'm going to keep going for 20 minutes like this, but you do somehow. I mm. don't know how that works. So there's there's some schools of thought that suggest that the ramp test that they do is a slightly better way of doing it because it takes out that mental pressure. Yeah, although, more. so a couple of things. First of all, if you started your FTP 20, your 20 minute time trial at 300, and you ended at 247, then I'll give the listeners an example of applying the concepts we've spoken about. Next time you do it, you could probably go 270 and you won't blow up because your that 260, 270 is probably actually your level. But when you were at 300, you were so far above your critical power. Yeah, you were but, eating yeah. into that. You were eating into that battery so much. Well, let me give you just to, clear, just to clarify, I didn't, I didn't start it at 300. I did actually in the Zwift um, test. What they do is they give you a couple of warm up mm, sessions mm. and they push you into 300. And I realized quite soon okay. that when they started the test, 300 was not going to okay, be very right. likely. So right, yeah, okay, I did. I did okay. start and I I went. I think I started trying to maintain 250 right from the beginning because it is and a, I was close to that yeah okay well that's good so you, you actually managed your effort you spent manage. your my governor theory was my governor motor was working. so it's about spending your budget right and, yeah. and in order to get from the start of the month to the end of the month under budget you can't blow money in the first week yeah and for physiological terms here's another analogy coming your way for the highlights <laughs> wheel uh, physiology terms is the same thing but but how do we know we're blowing our budget is because we're at a power output above FTP or CP. Right. And the budget is the W prime, right? So there, instead of a battery, think of it as a budget. Yeah. And so so to give people an idea, like when, when pacing goes wrong, it's because people are into their battery. They're eating into that battery or their budget too early. And then they reach a point with like halfway to go. I mean, like I'm only 50% of the way and I'm thinking, crikey, I'm actually pretty close to depleted here. And you're not depleted so much as accumulated of, you know, hydrogen ions and and, uh, body temperature and heat and all these kind of things that cause fatigue. Um, so So that's another way it plays out. Now, the ramp test you're talking about measures a slightly different thing. I don't know the Zwift ramp test, but generally when, when a sports scientist does a ramp test, we want to test your maximum capabilities. So we want to make you go faster and faster and faster until you crack. And the point at which you break is the point of interest because right. that's going to give us a VO2 max if we're measuring oxygen or it's going to give us a maximum power output. That's not a great way to manage a training program because and I remember this, this is again a running example. We, we used to do these studies when I was at university still as a student where we would get guys to come on and we were trying to work out whether maximum peak running speed predicted 10K times. And it does. It's a pretty good predictor, like it's 80% predictive. Right. But if you take a guy who's a, and I don't know why they did this. It wasn't, it wasn't me, but they used to test squash players. Now, a squash player is not a 10K runner. But when you do, him, when you do a ramp test with him, if you don't get the ramp test just right, he does unbelievably well because he's so used to like a five-minute super hard effort right. that he actually performs quite well, disproportionately well on a ramp test. And then, and then you make him run at 70% of that um, peak treadmill speed for 40 minutes and he is dead in 20. He right. cannot do it because right. he's, he's anchored himself too high. Makes sense, right? Yeah. So, so with ramp tests, you've got to be quite careful because if, you, if you're going to prescribe training based on a ceiling, a maximum ceiling, the, the concrete ceiling, then that could lead to kind of problems. Mm. 
that's why FTP and this now, I so said, now I'm finally, I'm finally answering your question about how else. <laughs> so we've already said you, you, you use it as a test to diagnose whether you're adapting to training. Right. The other way to do it is you use it as an anchor to prescribe training intensities. Because the FTP represents a ceiling also, but it's a glass ceiling. Mm-hmm. It's not the concrete ceiling that you smash up against. It's the glass one. And sometimes you train above that ceiling. Sometimes you train below it. Because as a as a important predictor of performance, it becomes a very useful anchor point to try and guide the prescription of training that will either drive a physiological change above threshold. So now we're talking about neuromuscular, glycolytic adaptations. Because if your FTP is 250 and you're going to ride at 280 for three or four minute intervals, you're teaching your body how to deal with the glycolytic stress of exercise. So lactate clearance and tolerance, uh, the anaerobic, quote unquote, impacts of exercise, Mm. the hydrogen ion, acidosis, all that kind of stuff, right? That's what you're training. And now you know it because you knew the anchor point at which it started to happen. So now I can go 10% harder than that. Does that make sense, right? On the other hand, I can use it as a ceiling that I want to stay below because now I know that if I stay below FTP, I'm going to train the oxidative systems. So if I wanted the capillary benefits, the cardiovascular, the lungs, the mitochondrial, and if I want a training stress that is not large enough to cause maybe overtraining, premature fatigue. Because, and this is where I come back. You remember you asked about the sweet spot. Yeah. You you can't be at the sweet spot all the time because it's just too hard. Yeah. By definition, I mean you 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 just said you did that FTP and like you get butterflies just thinking about the next time you got to do it because it's crappy hard. Right? Yeah. It's it's yeah. it's hell of a time. Crappy hard is a good word. Yeah. It is. And so. So if you trained at that point all the time, imagine how exhausted and how yeah. likely to be injured, overtrained, burned out, hormonally, it'd be, you'd be wrecked. Yeah. So now you use FTP to say, actually, you know what? If that's zone three or four, depends on how many zones you want there to be, my easy rides are zone one. Yeah. And if my FTP was 250, my easy rides are going to be 60% of my FTP. So that's 150. Yeah. And so now you've got... A target Proper to measure. aim for. And, yeah. and again, you, you might not have power output if you're not on your smart train on Zwift, but now you can you can use heart rate as a function of that. I mean, heart rate's got its own problems. It's affected by weather and wind and terrain and mood mm. and fatigue and training status and all this kind of stuff. So you've got to be you got to be pretty astute and have your ducks in a row. Right. But it's a it's a way that you can use your FTP measured on Zwift to now try and inform you for outdoors because what's your heart rate at FTP? Yeah. Now that's your anchor point. But the, the, the point is that you're using a more reliable, more valid measure of performance to prescribe training intensities that are then going to cause for you different adaptations. Right. And then again, like we spoke in our perfect training one, you probably don't want more than 10 to 20% of your training to be above LT. And the big mistake a lot of people make, by the way, is that they, they do spend too much time at or just above it. Yeah. And I mean, I do that because I like the intensity. Yeah. It's actually like even today we went riding and you, you get to a climb that you know is about five, 10 minutes long. You're going to sit on that climb at FTP. More yes. or less. We yeah. did. I think we did today. Yeah. I was slightly over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because 
<laughs> because it's just it's it's yeah. This is why we this is why we ride. Like yeah, we feel yeah, alive, you know, yeah. because it hurts a little bit, but not too much. Yes. That's what <laughs> that's what semi steady state is. Yes. But it's still hard. Eh? Like you couldn't yeah. do it all the time. No. And most people make that mistake. They train at their so called sweet spot or threshold or functional threshold power CP because they think that's going to make them the best. But actually, what you want to do is polarize your training so that you do a lot more at low intensities because you still get the same benefits that are going to affect CP and FTP. Right. Remember those mitochondria, the capillaries, the enzymes, the fat oxidation ability. You're still, you're still stressing those systems at lower power outputs than FTP. And then you spend 10% of your time above FTP because that's where you're learning lactate tolerance and, and really dealing with the glycolytic side effects of exercise. So polarize the training to, in order to shift the middle. You don't, that's the great irony is you don't have to train the middle to shift the middle. Yeah. So just here, here's a couple of quick questions. Um, one of them is a, is a, a, a theory. Um, for most of the people listening to this podcast, they won't, they might have a smart trainer. I would guess that probably most don't. Um, most people probably won't ride with a power meter. Most people will just have a normal bike. If I did find out my FTP getting onto Zwift or I managed to go to a gym and sort that kind of thing out, would it be feasible if you had a Harley monitor, which is a much more easily accessible method of measuring things, to go and do a test at my suggested one hour, my FTP, in other words, my one hour time, measure my average heart rate in that time, and then realize that my heart rate was in that zone so that I could work my heart rate within those zones if it was only a Harley monitor that I had. In other words, if I knew my, what my one hour average heart rate was, is that a good measure of my power? And, 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 and taking one step further, is that how it would be useful for runners? Yeah, so, so that's one way to do it. The other way is RPE, but we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. So for, for heart rate, if you started out um, and your heart rate's 120 on the start line and you're gonna ride for an hour uh, maximally so that by the 61 minute mark, you're falling off the bicycle or yeah. whatever, or, or running, I guess 60 minute max run is, that's, that's what not I do, fun. What I would do is I would do my FTP test like I've done. The 20 minute then, one. And then say, okay, it's 237 or what yeah, it is. So it's, and then go ride 237 for an hour and work out what my average heart rate was. So not a bad approximation. You might want to look at that heart rate trace and see what it looks like. Because if it reaches a steady state, for instance, in the last 10 minutes, that's a better measure, the last 10 right. minutes compared to the whole thing. Because otherwise it's it's sucked down by the fact that you start at a low heart rate. And then your heart rate is going right. to go up and then maybe steady off. Steady okay. Probably won't get steady state though, because a 20 minute one, you're probably just going to go up and up and up and up. You, know? will, like, you will fatigue. Yeah. So then you've got to be quite quite smart about which heart rate do you use. Is it the last 10 minutes? Because now you're probably overestimating it. Yeah. Is it the whole thing? So you might have to play around a little bit on that. There are there are studies and relationships between lactate threshold, power output, RPE, where people have made these tables that relate one to the other. So like, for instance, they'll say that your zone one is 60% or 50% of FTP. The RPE is going to be two and your heart rate is going to be 65% of your age-derived max using a Carvinen equation or something like that. So it, it, mm. there are ways to equate one to the other that, that already exist. So I'll give you an example of that, actually, because um, I've, I've seen it in, in a paper. Because so I'm talking I specifically about the runners out there who don't, you know, you can't measure power in running. So the only way you can measure running for the average person is to wear a heart rate monitor and, and you'll look at your speed. Right, and, and 
or RPE, right? So for instance, I'll give you an example here. Like, so this is this is Cogan again, who we mentioned earlier, and he's done all this stuff with training peaks that many listeners may know of. So he has a seven zone system. So let's say zone two here is the endurance zone. Um, he's talking here about going at 70, between 56 and 75% of your LT power. That's your lactate threshold power. Let's call it FTP. Average heart rate will be between 70 and 80%, and the RPE will be two to three. Right. So that, so that's that's more or less that's more or less right. When we when we get to, um, but but this average heart rate, by the way, is percentage of the LT heart rate. So it's the it's the metric that you mentioned using. In other words, I'm going to go and measure my heart rate for that 20 minute effort, and then use that as my LT heart rate right. or my F, my functional threshold and heart it would, rate. It would be your average heart rate for that 20 minutes. Right, in this right. instance. And so he's saying, yeah, it's like level four is his LT zone. So right. you've got seven levels, the middle one is LT. So again, right. you, you're in the middle here. And the average power would be between 90 and 105% of LT power. The average heart rate will be between 95 and 105% LT power, which makes yeah. sense because- where can, where can we find that? This is a, this is a chapter of, of the book that he wrote. Um, on training with power, which I found just through a Google search because it came up in a couple of scientific papers. So that what, I, what are we Googling? Uh, Coggin training with power chapter. So it's pretty good. I mean, it's it's well yeah. written and he knows his onions, obviously, you know. And then the perceived exertion, see, and this is, I don't agree with this, is perceived exertion for the LT power is four to five. And I mean, you, you're not at... You know, at four to five. So no, I think maybe maybe Cargan and I have different ideas of what perceived exertion is. For me, that's not four to five. I mean, I'm at right. seven, eight yeah. in the beginning. By the end, I'm at 10, you know, because anyway, perceived exertion is quite complex. For me, if I didn't have a heart rate monitor or a power output, a uh, power monitor, I still, I mean, I'm biased because my PhD was on perceived exertion. <laughs> so I, I think it's a very good way to judge training. Obviously, I appreciate some people it feels are... feels kind of a bit unscientific, I always think, with RPE, but... Yeah, no, I've often joked, like, they gave me a PhD for asking people how they feel, you know? It's a stupid concept. <laughs> should be a psychologist. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually quite complex because that, that, that perception of effort is integrating everything going on in your body, yeah. including emotional stuff, like, that you can't even think to measure. Right. But it's psychology, emotion, context, environment, mood, temperature... Uh, sodium levels, hydrogen mm. levels, mm. glycogen levels, whatever, like oxygen levels, carbon dioxide levels, you name it. If you could measure RPE with a, some sort of wrist device, it would oh. probably be the ultimate way yeah. of measuring something, but that's impossible. Yeah, like it? if you could measure, you could turn brain activity into a number. Yeah. You use it like yeah. a fuel gauge in a car does yeah. with a volt of mass. Yeah. So, so RPE for me is always going to be the best thing. So if your RPE in that 20-minute effort, let's say, you see, because RPE is going to be affected so much by the just the pain that you induce or impose on your body over the course of the 20 minutes that it becomes actually like skewed by sensation. It's more like a rating of perceived sensation and not output. And this is where it gets tricky. So when Cogan talks about an RPE of four or five, he's talking about output exertion. Right. Like as in, I could apply f twice the force but I'm not, I'm applying half the force I could, therefore it's a five. When I'm going maximally, like a 20 second sprint, now I'm a 10. Right. But but the 20 second sprint doesn't hurt as much as the 20 minutes at five. No. So, so depending on how you understand RPE, this is, this is anyway, this is probably a subject for another discussion, yeah, for sure. but it, it, it actually changes. I remember we once played around with a rating of mechanical work 
to try and distinguish the sensation part from the actual output part, you know? So like, right. it was, can you, if I, if I didn't let you see your power, even today on the ride, I said, what do you think you're at? And you were like 250, which means that you've got some idea of what the work of 250 feels like. Yes. And that's because you're feeling it through your legs. You're feeling it as a resistance and as a, as a, as a sort of sensation of pain mechanically, you know? But at that point in time, that didn't feel like an RPE of 10 to you, but it might have, might have corresponded to an exertion of seven. It was uncomfortably hard. Yeah. But so, so had you gone had you gone at that intensity for another 10 minutes, your yeah. RPE would have been 10, but your work exertion would have still been the same. So anyway, let me not muddy these waters with a different concept to what we're talking about. I, I still think, though, that most runners, if they are listening to their bodies and not deceiving themselves could use RPE and nothing else to train smartly. The Kenyan athletes do that. They don't have all the gadgets that we do, and they just listen. So they know right. that on an easy run, I'm a 2 out of 10 at the start, and I'm a 4 out of 10 at the finish. And if someone said to me, can you do this again? I'd say, sure, because it was easy. Right. It's a 4. When they do their harder work, then they know that this is a 5 becoming a 6 or a 7. And when they do the track sessions, they know that this is going to be a nine. Yeah. And they're pretty well dialed in, you know. And the same thing with cyclists. So I think with experience, athletes probably learn RPE in a way that, in my opinion, probably trumps all these other metrics. But the best combination, I reckon, is if you're aware of your perception of efforts and your RP and how you're recovering and all that sort of stuff, and then you contextualize it with data, which is the journey you're on now. So now you're looking at the data, you're checking, okay, today I did Strava and I did the following, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so next time I do it, I'm going to feel like this. So you're actually, you're actually constantly learning to relate RPE to heart rate, to power yeah. and time and stopwatch. And that's the, that's the beauty of the, the training I'm actually going to go into my Strava now and look at what my, uh, what my power, potential power was at the time that I said, I think I'm doing 250 because I wasn't sure I only had a heart rate monitor, but it will hopefully give me a measure of that based I think on it the was. course. We looked at that earlier. It was that Glastonbury yeah. climb where yeah. I think it was like 240 odd and then Something, 260 yeah. odd. So exactly. Yeah. So. I think the, the great, uh, I mean, just to wrap up the discussion today, I, I think the, the magic of what we talk about with these things, and you and I agree on this, is that and one of the reasons why you got involved in sports science at, the, at, at, at a very early age and why I think to some extent my fascination by this has driven some of the motivation around my training is that the more we know, the more motivating it is. Whether, whether our numbers are low or high, we start looking at our performance based on our own performance. Like I, I've stopped looking and basing myself around how good somebody else is, but I can go for a ride with you today and a ride with somebody else tomorrow and I can say, am I riding within my own limits and pushing where I can, am I improving? And I think what FTP does is it gives you, as you've sort of said on a number of occasions, it gives you the opportunity to kind of see where you're at. And looking at the numbers kind of gives us, it gives us a, a, a distraction, it gives us a goal, it gives us something to be interested in. And I think that for those of you who are involved in cycling and running and triathlon, any kind of endurance sports, even swimming, as we've already discussed, it's a tool to allow you to better your performance, but also a tool that kind of allows you for more, allow, gives you more enjoyment around your sport because you have something to base your training on. And I, and I think when I think about this thing, yes, it's science. Yes, it's interesting. Yes, it's a great number to look at. But most importantly, it's quite fun to understand what this all means. I'm with you. Like not everyone's like that. I yeah. mean, there are some people who look at this and go like, I don't want to see numbers. Like yeah. I'm just going to go ride for two hours. It might be two and a half. It might be one and a half. I don't really care. I just want to be outside and enjoy myself. 
And then there are other people who are like obsessive about the data, actually to a fault, where they become so anal about every single thing that they actually can't vary it. And then I do wonder how do they enjoy it. But they do because that's actually the thing about it that, you know, it's the, the sport gives them a way to produce numbers and they love yeah. the numbers. So I agree with you. I, I mean, when I was a school kid, I remember getting a heart rate monitor, Polar Vantage something with yeah, NV. I remember it, yeah. And uh, downloading <laughs> it every day on my crappy computer at home and making an Excel chart, building a table, plotting some graphs. It was trivial, basic stuff, you know, 15, 16 years old. But mm. a big part of the run was actually the opportunity to make the data. Yeah. And then as you become more intelligent about it, and this is the key thing, is you start asking better questions. So yeah. you're saying, why did I get dropped by my mates up that climb, but not that one? Yeah. Okay, well, the first climb was a really steep one for five minutes. The second one was a really long one for 25 minutes, but it wasn't quite as steep. Yeah. And so yes, maybe there's something about my physiology that's not so good for short efforts. Yeah. But now I've got an anchor point because I can now I understand critical power. I understand like that it might predict my W prime. And maybe over the next month, I'm actually going to work on that element of my yeah. cycling. Yeah. So I'm going to work, I'm going to do some hard intervals, 45 second, two minute intervals, whatever it is. And a month from now, I'm not going to be dropped on that short, steep climb. Yeah. Sure enough, you do it. What a cool project. So that's the, that's the value of all this yeah. discussion. I mean, I know it's technical. And again, if you've stuck it out and you're a rugby fan or whatever, like the principles are no different eh? for swimming, for cycling, for triathlon, for team sports. They're no different. You just have to understand like, why does the performance drop? Why do we suffer? Why does fatigue occur? And then work backwards from there to like change when that happens, if at all. So hopefully that's clarified for people and it's not muddied the waters and I haven't, I've tried as much as possible, we both have, to not use language without <laughs> explaining what we're actually talking about. I'm still not sure I understand, understand the sentence that you said to me, <laughs> but I certainly have more clarity. As a principle, you do. So that's, you, <laughs> you may not yet know MCT1s and 4s and so yeah. But, yeah. but like you now get that lactate's going from yeah. one place to the next and that's, yeah, little little bits of knowledge. You mm. just acquire them, you apply them, and you you learn, and that that makes you a better athlete. And yeah. hopefully, that's the outcome from this chat. Well, Professor Ostaker, thank you very much for your time today. I know we've had we've basically spent the whole day today. We've been for a ride and we've doing our podcast, and uh, it has been a, a big learning curve for me. And I hope that for all of you listening, that this issue around FTP, that kind of the, the these muddy waters have been a bit clearer now, and you kind of know a little bit about what it's about and how to work it and how to use it. But uh, until next time, it's goodbye from us. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.